0: Well, I'm going to get started tonight talking about this stuff. Um, And so I've got too, too big a scripture on the first page of the slide, but I just want to read this. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifest to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so the first little uh, language indication out of that that I want us to think about is that when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the literal presence of Jesus in and with people. Even the people that we're preaching the gospel to. And and there's uh, a shift in thinking, you know, required for that because most of us have grown up in an evangelical theology in this country where... Uh, You don't have a relationship with God until you establish uh, that by saying the sinner's prayer or something along those lines. But the truth of the matter is if you think about that logically, that doesn't make a lot of sense because what is there in you to make a positive decision like that if there isn't God working in us to will and do according to his good pleasure? And so we've got to understand that God is actively working not to destroy our will, not to usurp our authority or our personal will, But he's working in us toward an end. And the end is what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. What is God doing? What is he wanting to do? What is the end he's aiming at so that we can understand what the gospel really means? Because most of us uh, grew up with a gospel that wasn't that focused on what God was doing. It was much more focused on what God has already done and what are we doing. And so we're going to get going in here. So here's a review. Uh, to jump off on. Two points of focus in our gospel language are either what, and the next slide's going to remind us that it's who. So, what? And th- when you start with these kind of questions, uh, you come up with a gospel like most of us have experienced in our past, and m- many of us are rejecting right now. Uh, what am I? It, it talks about, you know, basically the answer there you're a sinner, you're lost, or something like that. And what is God? And the answer there usually is some attribute, like you're holy, he's holy, or he's a righteous judge, or he's the creator, or he's omniscient or omni something like that. What's God's response to what you are? And you can already see that we've taken this out of the realm of relationship, and we've made it a legal kind of a question. Um, and I'm not saying that there's not truth to some of these questions, but I'm saying as the basis for understanding the good news, these are not good ones. So what's God's response? Well, he convicts us or he judges us. And then the idea, we're still stuck in the what mode. So what's required of it? What do I have to do? What do I, what do I have to do? And I understand that there was a person that came up and said, what must we do to be saved? You know, the, the Philippian jailer said that. But Paul immediately led that Philippian jailer into a relationship. He didn't leave it as if it were just another legal transaction that was going to be going on. And when you think about the context in which that question was asked, A jail and a soldier guarding and so on it's pretty interesting um so what's required uh repentance acknowledging our sin or sorrow um yeah yeah it's this serious sorrow sorrow that produces snot or (laughs) tears or something is mostly how we saw it i always questioned it if you if it didn't produce snot or tears you know like are you sure you're really saved and then, uh, but it wasn't a problem because we would give that same person the opportunity to get saved the next week and the next week and the next week after that. So uh, I questioned, though, th- this, is, this is a good question th- to, yes. <laughs> the, uh, the yeah, I should add, it's not to the list. But this is kind of an interesting point to focus on to, to evaluate how we feel about the gospel and what we're thinking about it. Does it require Sorrow. With what God has done, with what Jesus has done, could not those things be believed simply with joy? Alan brought up a couple of times in our conversation earlier tonight, uh, he, he brought up um, the, the reality, it says there in Romans, that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So if repentance is one of the requirements, couldn't it be a joyful repentance if it was the kindness of God that dawned on us? And why do we devalue a person pursuing the kindness of God, or God pursuing a person with kindness. Why does it have to be condemnation and, and harrowing instances? So that's an interesting thought. And I think it, I think one of the 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 reason I paused on that is because anytime I can come up with a thought that lines up nicely, truly with scripture, that helps overcome my fear of somehow misrepresenting God or underselling the, uh, the horror of sin or underselling that kind of thing. It's good. And so to me, I think I would, I would just say that it would, it would be good for us to think about the reaction to the kindness of God being joy and that joy being a great way to get saved, a great way to get to know God. Okay, so what are the consequences of failure? Uh, rejection, abandonment or burning eternally in hell with no chance of escape or repentance. And one of the things that, not tonight, I'm not going to talk about it, but I want to let you know that we're going to get to in this conversation, is what is the ramification if, um, no, no, let me put it another way, what is the justification in talking about anything else if eternal separation from God in perpetual flames of torment is what we're trying to escape. If you believe that that is one of the two alternatives in the gospel, you can certainly understand you'd be a monster if you didn't commit yourself to uh, get them saved at all costs with all kinds of threats. Because uh, if if that is the choice, well then, how do we spend any time doing anything except pursuing people? If that isn't actually the primary focus of making a decision to get to know jesus come into a relationship whatever then a lot of smaller things that are very very important like little acts of kindness cups of cold water in the name of jesus they become much more important those things really can't hold a candle no pun intended to a raging eternal inferno of which you go if you don't make all the right moves and so we'll, we'll get into that and that's going to be one of the challenging aspects um, Uh, Just so you know, I believe that hell is a real thing, and I believe that it has to be contended with, but I don't believe that it is the uh, counterpoint to, uh, the only counterpoint to what what is good and what our hopes are in eternity. Uh, What is the reward for the correct response? Well, of course, it's heaven. And unfortunately, because of all these other things, uh, and the judgment and all that kind of stuff, it's heaven if... Heaven if you hang in there. Heaven if you keep doing it. And so uh, this is the old gospel. We reviewed that last time. Uh, Who questions are different than what questions. Because who questions natively cause us to come into a relationship thinking, to think about it. So who is God? Who is God? That's a a much more significant question than what is God. Because you could have a robust discussion about what is God with an atheist. But you can't really have much of a relational discussion with people that don't believe in God when, when the question is about who. And as a matter of fact, who is an uncomfortable question for somebody who doesn't really know if they want to believe whether God exists or not. So this is this is at the heart of what I think we are understanding the gospel to be. Who is God? And then the second question is, who are you? And the reason I, I feel like that's different than what are you is because what are you could answer you could answer the same way you, you know what am i i'm a creation of god i'm a son of god i'm a child of god but more often than not what leads us to a to a an adjective or it leads us to a modifier or a definer of us and that's why it's hard to to battle against the idea of you're a sinner saved by grace or you're lost or you're not a you're a sinner not saved by grace yet you know so who you are is different and it begs a question about where you came from who you're in relationship with, why you are the way you are, that kind of stuff. Uh, what is God's goal in hope and redemption? I asked a question one time of some people that characterized the difference between this question and um, the older version of the gospel that I grew up with. And it's, it's this. Is God trying to get the most people possible into the kingdom? Or is he trying to keep the wrong people out of the kingdom. In other words, what is God's goal? Is God trying to get the most people possible into the eternal kingdom with him? Is that his primary driving motive? Or or is that the motive that will help us understand why he acts the way he does, what he says, what he says in the scripture, why he sent Jesus, and so on? Or is the primary driving motive that God needs to keep heaven clean And so he wants to keep the wrong people out. And I don't know anybody, and when I asked that question a couple of times among peers and stuff, nobody was really comfortable with the question, and nobody was comfortable saying, oh, he's trying to keep the wrong people out. So I don't think we even think that, but we act that way if we're not careful. We act like there's a series of gates through which you have to pass is, and narrow is the other one, (laughs) and wide is one of them. So anyway, it just sets, the question is just, this is a better question. What is God trying to do? And we're going to look a teeny bit at that tonight with just a couple of scriptures. And then what works against, not our goals to go to heaven, what works against God's goals? Because just basic ignorance could work against mine. Not being born in a country that's been evangelized could be one of those things. But the real question and the real answer is, is there stuff working against God's goals? Because if we can understand that, we can understand more what we're up against, whether it be in evangelism or living in our own personal lives. And then what is God doing? And I modified this, Ronnie, and simplified it, according, as you can see, according to your comments, and focused on the what is God doing as if God were acting in kind of an eternal presence that also informs the past and informs the future. And I think that's an okay way to think. I don't fully understand it, but it sounded good when I said it. Uh, what is God doing to achieve His goal and His hope? And then, you'd think that this is a question that the other form of the gospel talks about, uh, you know, because I think, um, I don't know who it is. I was going to... Uh, I like Kirk Cameron's gospel, but I don't know if this is his. Um, but, you know, God loves you and has a, a beautiful plan for your life or a wonderful plan for your life. That sounds like you're talking about this. You know, no, it isn't. That's passive. That's, there's a plan. And God's loving you, but hoping you get there, you know, hoping you go through it. But what is God doing? What is his activity that, that can impact us so that his goal will be realized in our life. And that is where I think of all the places, Jen, taking the time to recraft our language around more accurate thoughts. This is one of those that would be amazing. Like when we see somebody or if you guys, you know, or some of the people you were visiting and, uh, that, that don't confess Jesus uh, over the holidays or whatever. Or somebody who struggles, like I had to deal with a gentleman that just struggled mightily a couple of days ago and it was was really a super horrible situation and not anything I was excited about having to do or anything. But what's God doing to achieve his goal in that gentleman's life? And all of a sudden, there are rays of optimism coming because the mess that he's made of his life is not the defining story of his life and it's not you know it it's not that he has to unravel every one of those tangles and every one of those sticky knots that he's created god is working in a mighty way in a loving way to do that so that's why i think this kind of question will help us guide our language and help us guide our hearts in understanding what is god doing to achieve the goal and of course if you don't know what his goal is um you won't have any answer to that. So those two go together. And then lastly, what do we need to do to receive and experience God's goal and hope as our own? And so I know that's a little bit of a complicated sounding question, this idea of his goal and hope, his goal and hope. Jesus clarified one of these aspects when he said in John chapter 17, this is eternal life, that they would know you, Father, and Jesus whom you sent. So what is God doing? That's one of his goals, right? What is God doing so that you and I and our friends and family, and our atheist friends and family, and our unbelieving friends and family, what is God doing so that they can know the Father and Jesus whom he sent? Because the truth of the matter is, if God's doing nothing, they aren't going to know him. And if he's only done something in the past, like uh, the story, you know, everything revolves around that That 36-hour period of Jesus dying on the cross and rising. If that's God's entire deposit for the sake of His purpose, then we have that historic moment that we have to somehow articulate so clearly and so powerfully under some kind of anointing. But then you can't really count on the anointing if you don't know that God is actively doing it now. So... And I'm not saying that there's no truth in the other form of the gospel. But what I'm saying is that I think that this could help us move that way. So those are the, the kind of questions. the Who leads to a relational situation? So I want to look at a couple of scriptures and uh, see how subtle the differences might be in what we focus on when we talk about them and talk about the, the gospel itself, the good news, if we uh, think relationally as opposed to the what and the, and the how. in the in interest of a fair disclaimer, I've never heard this scripture personally used a lot as a gospel scripture. And the reason is it's probably not germane to any of the why, uh, the what questions. But if you ask the who questions, there's some interesting stuff in here. Here's the first point that has to become central in guiding our language and the narrative of the gospel, as we understand it. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just God. Not the correct God, as opposed to the false God of Allah, or Buddha, or Brahman, or any of those things. And that is one of the interesting things about the other form of the gospel that's all about what's is one of the big um, undergirding issues to that gospel and to missionary work and evangelism is is a competition literally between God and other gods in the minds of people. And so we know that there is no competition. We know there is one God, but that one God has character, has a character, and he is the God, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, we're not doing a particular study on Trinity tonight, but this is very relevant to that thing, because there's so, so much that impacts our life and our daily interactions with one another and and our pursuit of God and pursuit of love about what exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, it begins with, in the beginning was the Word, And the word was with God, face to face, pros, and he was God. And then all of a sudden we are brought into the relationship between God and Father of our Jesus Christ. Or another way to put it in this scripture is that the blessing that is being proclaimed here is from the God who is the Father of Jesus, our Savior. And so there's already two or three super significant points in the gospel that we're sharing with somebody if we make this. Do you know that God thinks of himself as your father? This is talking to a person who hasn't been saved yet. Do you know God thinks of himself as your father? And that means he thinks of you as his child. That is a whole different entry point. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Uh I always use Burning Man. Yeah, that's, go ahead, because you've been there. Uh, but this scripture only meant for who I thought were believers. Yeah. But since Burning Man, I go, this is available. Because I saw it available to them, mm-hmm. and they didn't even know it. I mean, so it's, yeah, it's it's available because God is constantly blessing everyone in their life they just don't know it. Mm-hmm. They just can't recognize it. But when you come to that place of understanding who God is in your life, and who that, that relationship that you have, then then you say, "Wow!" Then you reflect on the back in your past and go, "Wow, I, that was God that was involved there." And and what's what is available to me now? Now that I know what's behind me, what's in front of me? Knowing this scripture mm-hmm. of of all the blessing, I mean. In the heavenly places in Christ, I mean, the whole, it just uh, opens up the whole world. It does. Stay
0: there just a second. So you see this question down here, what is God doing to achieve his goal? That you experienced. Yeah. And that's what I mean by informing past and informing the future and speaking just as richly as we think about people who don't yet know Jesus as they do. Because yeah, in Burning Man, you see that all the time. You see God's active work in those kind of people's lives. Because there's only one kind of people. (laughs) There's there's just people who know or who don't. Uh, Okay, and so has blessed us. God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us. All right. In fairness, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is a way of talking about the blessing that God has. But there are other uh, there are other ways, like this idea that that who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, who has blessed us, the nature of God is to bless people because He is blessed. Blessed is the God and Father. You know, a lot of times if you, if you uh, look at various translations, blessed is also translated happy. Happy is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ the old version of the gospel that I was taught and that I grew up under, God was not happy fundamentally. And even if I thought that maybe independent of all the knot uh, nut heads down here on earth, he was happy. Once I started talking about the need to overcome sin and do all that, there's no way he's happy about that, you know. But I think God is happy. He, he is a happy, happy father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, that, that blessed is a big one. In Christ, too. This is another one. In Christ. He's blessed us in every spiritual blessing. In Christ. Where do those blessings abide? They may come from heaven. They may be experienced in heaven, but they, they are in us, in Christ. And that allows us to, to talk. Now, that's why the concept of inclusion is an important one that we're going to talk about before we get out of the series, because what do we mean when we're talking about inclusion? Are we talking about everybody being in the exact same situation, regardless of where they what where they are on their road to believing or something? Or are we talking about people being in the same place in the heart of the Father? In the same place in the created intentions of the Father, in the same place in the sending of his son, are are, are all people in that place in the heart of God? I happen to think they are, but we can study it, and and try to come up with a a better way to talk about that. But in Christ is important. Uh, Also, the idea of God and Father, the Lord Jesus, is something that I'm working on personally with that theology course I'm in and some other things to try to understand the dynamic of the room that this relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit makes for us to be a part of God, to literally be in Him. Because if God is just this one monolithic God being, kind of like I think uh, Brahman is one we talked about one time. Then to be in him is to be lost to yourself and lost to the world around you. But to be in our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is to be in the middle of something as ourselves. Something wonderful. That dynamic.
2: Dan? Yeah. I think we use a weird tense because you look at verse 5, you know, he predestined us to adoption as sons. So we'll say traditionally, often we use that and we say that's us, the Christians, we're predestined. It's like, well, were you predestined the day before you were a Christian? Right. Well, it's like, yeah, you were predestined to this adoption as sons before. So it's we don't catch the notion that this is an infinitive of it's it is always that we're a predestined, you know, and I mean, later in the chapter, he talks about receiving Christ. I mean, that's in like verse 13 or something, but he has called he has put us there and he has a destiny for all people mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and so the two people you, you know you can look at two people you mm-hmm. can look at you as a as a believer you can look at another person from burning man that's not a believer and the common point between those two people doesn't have to be their life and mm-hmm. their stuff it's jesus's life right. and stuff he's the point of predestination yeah in which we are targeted aimed from the heart of God, from the design of God.
2: Right, and we're both predestined. Mm-hmm. We're both predestined to adoption. Just one of us is actively enjoying the fruits mm-hmm. and benefits of that relationship. The other yep. is not clued in yet. And that, that's a
0: reason why the, one of the, the who questions, or it's not so much what is required, but it's what is God doing and how do we respond? How do we respond to that, to be a part of that? Yeah, that's good, that's good. Uh, okay, so in love. Now, depending on where the uh, particular translation makes the break in between verse 4 and 5, it's either that just as he chose us in him before the foundation that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, some punctuate it that way, or in love he predestined us to adoption. Either way, it speaks to the heart motive of God. Speaks to the heart motive of God. And it goes back to the question, what's God's goal? Is he trying to keep the wrong people out of heaven? (laughs) Or is he trying to get as many people in as he can? And what is the motive? The motive is love. I was, um, and I I don't mean to particularly pick on this version of theology or this person, uh, because I'm sure he has a different perspective now since he passed, but R.C. Sproul one time was, very famous for answering a question in a class of college students, I think it was college students, where uh, a young man asked him, is it appropriate or true to stand before a group of people that you don't know and say God loves them? And Dr. Sproul said, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, the majority of them, more likely than not, God hates. That's the theology of a God who is trying to keep the wrong people out and get the good people in. Uh, and, and, and again, that is the product of the what series of questions in the gospel that is a dividing factor instead of an inclusive, unifying factor. Yes, Ronnie?
3: You keep saying the the two options, one is keep God keeping people out and God getting as many in as he can.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Why aren't you saying God getting everybody in?
0: Because uh, I'm not ready to say that yet. It's, it's, a, it's a question that no, it's a, it's a question that needs a foundation to be asked, and I haven't laid the foundation yet. But we'll get to that We'll get to that in this series. yes. We'll bump up against that awkwardness at some point. Uh, in love, he predestined us to adoption his sons through Jesus Christ. Here's another one. To himself. All right. One of the see this is a relational thing, just like the first verse is that's on the board there. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a relational statement. It talks about the Father and the son and what goes on between them, the, 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 the nature of that relationship. It doesn't expel it all out, but it talks about it. This one in a, uh, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus and the emphasis is to himself, to himself. So much of the, the gospel presentation that I grew up with focused on just receiving Jesus as your Savior and getting a new status. It didn't say anything about uh, a relationship with the Father. It didn't say anything about the quintessential expression of what eternal life is out of John 17, which is this is to know the, you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus whom you sent. But at the heart of our understanding of the gospel is when the gospel affects its work on me and when I respond to it, I am a brand new child before my daddy. Now, that isn't even actually totally true, but but there's a relational part to that that is very desirable. And um, I know very devout Christians, very sincere Christians. I know people who've, Going to various Bible schools, and I'm not just talking about the one here, I'm talking about one I went to, um, who have a form of Christianity that does not create a comfortable, assured sense in them of belonging to God. It just doesn't. And the first time something goes weird, the first time some uh, Indian call center scammer makes them look as dumb as I felt today, uh, they start wondering what they did wrong and whether they're being punished or how could. If you love me, Lord, why did you let that happen? Or something like that. And those questions, they shouldn't ever have to be asked if the gospel we present leaves people in the throes of a relationship with a good father. They just shouldn't have to be asked. I'm not saying they wouldn't have to be, but the answers would come a lot more quickly than they do. So that's relational. This whole process... See, um, I was going to start tonight with a joke, but I got all flabbergasted by the way the day was. And I said I had a, a, a message about the goodness of God um, planned for tonight, but because of the seating arrangement, I decided instead to preach on penal substitutionary atonement. Because <laughs> <laughs> it fits the room better. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I don't know why I said that. That's funny. <laughs> the old gospel seating arrangement, yeah. Uh, okay, how about here? So now it's th- this is a relationship now with the Father. If we look here, uh, according to, you know what? What does according to mean? According to means in the manner of or because of or something like that, you know? In other words, the reason behind this crazy act of predestining us to the adoption of Jesus is the kind intentions of his will. Oh, I remember why I said that when I was thinking of penal substitutionary atonement. Because if you believe that the central story of the gospel is the father turning his back on Jesus and then over his shoulder hurling lightning bolts to kill him in our behalf, then the kind intentions of his will never occur to you in association with the cross. They never occur to you in association with redemption. You just have to grit it through redemption, and hopefully someday there'll be a kind intention of his will. And going back to what Alan brought up so often in our earlier conversation, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's not the kindness of God that necessarily makes you so sorry that you cry and produce snot. It's the real definition of repentance. The changing of your heart and mind. The turning toward. The turning away from one idea. And turning toward. That's what the kindness is. And that's missing in most of the versions of the gospel. It's missing. And it creates these weird sort of schizophrenic things like Don't you want to crawl up in God's lap? Well, frankly, not really. (laughs) Because what if I do something wrong? Or what if I make a mess? Or whatever. I don't want to be that close to one who would turn on me the way he turned on his son. In the popular vernacular of what was going on in the cross. So, kind intentions of his will. And now, this last part. The glory of his grace. And again, It finishes in a relational statement, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And this goes back, Dan, to your comment. In the traditional way we think about the gospel with uh, one camp versus another, in and out and all that stuff, the bestowed on us is a very narrow group of people. It's the people that are saved. But really, in practical terms, it's the people that I am comfortable are saved. That's really the truth. That's really what affects our telling of the story. Because if I'm a Baptist, which I was at one point in my life, I didn't have that much confidence that the Episcopalian dude down the street was one of us because he got sprinkled and I got dunked. Or when I was, which I was, a full-blooded, wild, curly-haired Assemblies of God Pentecostal I had lost confidence that the Baptist brothers that I used to hang with were one of us because they hadn't spoken tongues or fallen out or anything. And and this isn't because we're all self-centered, narcissistic egomaniacs, because I wasn't, and I'm not, as the Indian guy will attest to if you ever get to talk to him. Uh, It's because of the gospel and the mechanics of that gospel that we have a tendency to believe in. And so, this is an entirely different thing. It's a relational thing. It allows us to relax. And then going back to Richard's point, that God is doing something on people. Now I can give Him time to do that. I don't have to worry so much. I, I'm never again in my life tempted to use this saying, if you should get hit by a bus on the way home after this meeting. I just think it's an irrelevant question now. And because it once was a relevant question, it showed me that I didn't understand the the kind intentions of His will, nor the gift of His grace. Yes, Jen?
4: Just for clarity's sake, can you still look at verse 1 and 2 about who He's addressing? Uh-huh, I, think sure. that, I think that is what always uh hangs me up on the sure. differentiation
0: let me see where are my glasses here I, I can't get it up on the board but I can read it to you you're asking verses one and two in Ephesians right yeah you bet
3: and while you're doing that uh-huh. before you get to that what does beloved mean in the beloved you know, what we were just talking about. Uh huh. If it's not, you know, the group of saved people.
0: In the beloved? Um, okay, yeah. let me read the first verse. This is good. And this is the kind of stuff that I, I relish because this is what we're going to read. Okay, to the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I understand how that can, and I don't begrudge people who do, say that... Um, this only applies to the saints at Ephesus, so we're screwed because I've never been to Ephesus. Ronnie's okay. Would you like to finish the sermon as one of the saints <laughs> We always can res- we always can restrict this down, and it is it is absolutely uh, an issue every time you isolate a passage of scripture and, and you don't read the whole thing, the whole book, you know, or the whole chapter um I don't know that I could dissuade someone from saying, that is enough to make these things apply. But again, then we have to go back to, what is the character of God that's implied by that? So he only predestined the the ones who already had believed in Ephesus. Or, let's just not make Ephesus the issue, because that was a little sarcastic, but, uh, on my part, but, we're back to the thing where the only ones that he has predestined to adoption as sons in Christ are the ones who have proven by their conversion that they are in Christ, that they're the chosen ones. And, and, and that is a question that we have to sell, is, Lord, when did you make this choice, and on what grounds did you make it? Now, Calvinism says that he made this choice before anything and that he made it for reasons that are contained within the mystery of his character and there's no way we can know it. And that is the excuse that we have to preach to everybody because some will be a part of the elect. Um, That is a way of explaining these verses in the narrower sense. I don't personally think that The rest of Scripture holds up that way. And matter of fact, we've got one more verse to look at, and the next verse uh, doesn't seem to be that way. And then when you get in other parts, like in John chapter 12, it talks about that Jesus is the Savior of the cosmos, or the whole world. We made a big deal of that at the time. So the actions that are facilitating the adoption as sons that we were predestined to are actions that don't seem to be singled out at just the people who have already been converted, or whose adoption is proven by their acceptance. But that is the—that is how Calvinism thinks. I just don't—I don't know. So that's something we're going to have to worry about, worry about, or think about, work our way through on language. I don't—I don't have a, a definitive way from this one passage of scripture or the previous verses to say no. It's the same thing. Uh, though that could happen, and it does happen in other more liturgical churches, where the mission that is poured out on the disciples after the resurrection, uh, to forgive sin, for instance, you know, whosoever sins you forgive or forgiven, whosoever sins you retain or retained, that is not something theologically that is granted to the laity in the Catholic Church, as I understand it. That's a privilege given to the priest because... The clergy is the descendants from the disciples, not the regular folk. And I could be wrong on that. And if any of you know, I'd be happy to be corrected. But it's it's how do we interpret this? And again, this is different though. And this is why I think the questions, the, the who questions are better than the what questions. Who is the God who did the predestiny? Who is Jesus? That was the focal point of the predestination. And if he is the father, later on in Ephesians, or, yeah, this is only Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 2, we get into the statement, uh, the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive their name. That seems to be a more general revelation of this idea of God and Father of our Lord Jesus than just as it applies to a specific group of believers that are already believers. Something to think about. It's a good question. Mm-hmm. On the bottom? Yeah, I think it's Jesus. But That's a good question. Did that even address it? Gotcha, okay. Okay, yeah, me too. All right. Do you see how without trying to just manipulate this, though, That the highlighted scriptures there speak of things like relationalism, family, father, son. The the goal, the predestination, it's all about this relational deal. It's not a series of events to correct uh, an an unfortunate situation. It's a purpose. Okay, so here's one. It's more words about the relational, this one's about the cross a little bit. I thought this was interesting, and I love this passage. It's gotten a lot richer for me in the last... Several months. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So we're talking about the cross, right? So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the, son, of the only begotten the Son of God. And I will admit that as we go on in this thing, it talks a little bit more about judgment and condemnation and various things like that. So we definitely have to deal with that. But what I want you to see is a couple of nuances in this passage of Scripture that do speak to the relational aspect of the cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. I read this scripture most of my life as if it was going to say, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It says whoever believes will have eternal life. And where will that eternal life be? in Christ so this is a relational statement one of the most fundamental relational biblical statements about salvation that there is salvation is in Jesus how odd his name means yah saves <laughs> right so when we're standing in front of and we're not to the place where we've got our language organized yet fully for the gospel, but we're standing in front of an unbeliever. The God that we're trying to talk to them about, the Jesus who is also God is God that was on the cross is the God who saves. So back to the question, Ronnie, that you asked or or that I've been saying that prompted you to ask about how about everybody, Uh, What's God trying to do? Is he trying to keep the bad people out or get the good people in or get all the right people in? Well, we know that by his title and by the name that he assigned his son, and the reason Jesus wasn't named John was because the angel came with a commission from the Father to make sure that he had the right name. And that name means God saves. So that is, a to me, that's a, central part that needs to be in our understanding when we're talking, if there was an unbelieving person sitting here, the God who sees himself as your father, the God who sent his beloved son, he named his son the God who saves. He was thinking of you. He was thinking of me. We can say with confidence that. We we could rebut um, Brother Spruill. Is it okay to... Talk about God loving a whole crowd of people that you don't know. I think so. I think so because God so loved the world. Now, this is also that inclusive word of cosmos here. This is also another thing that mitigates against the narrower interpretation uh, that we could make of the passage you, you said, Jen, is that the act of making all this redemptive process come to being, come into fruition is because God loved the whole world. He loved the cosmos. And of course, it wouldn't obviously made any sense to say, for God so loved the believers, because there weren't any. God so loved the believers that he predestined them (laughs) to become. You know, you could stretch that and make it kind of a metaphysical weirdness. God so loved the elect. I've heard it said that way. I've heard it said that way. Yeah, but the word is cosmos. Cosmos. And uh, so God so loved the world. That is a big indicator of the truth of this situation. You coming for a question? Sort of. Yeah.
4: (laughs) Testing. Oh, good. Um, So thinking about what Ronnie said about, you know, the aspects of why wouldn't God want everybody in, and then just listening to the beautifulness of this passage Do you think it's a matter of trust that we don't trust God in terms of if everybody gets in, something isn't right right, or something isn't balanced and measured out correctly? So we really, it's, it's like we don't trust him to know the difference between good and evil or we don't trust him to take a person who is living an evil life into goodness at some point in their their life. So I don't really have a question, but it is something I just would like people to think about. Yeah. Like, is this a trust issue for you? And if it is, what does that look like for you? You know, because I'm kind of at the point now where I'm like going, "Wow, Lord, I I just really want to trust you in this." So if I believe that everybody's in, then how they get in isn't my group, isn't my business. Unless you tell me, say something, do something, mm-hmm. provide something. Anyway.
0: I, it, I think, I, I think it could be a, a way of trust. I want to go back to that thing that, that was said kind of, and made everybody laugh a little bit. Um, if we, insist on the what and hows as our primary way of understanding the gospel. That's what, lead, that's what led me to have doubts about the Episcopal friends being saved when I was a Baptist and to have doubts about the Baptist friends being saved when I was a full-fledged, tongue-speaking Pentecostal. Because I was, I was needing to experience validation of my beliefs before I could allow God to have His way in their life. And that puts us in the wrong position. But all the what questions put us in the wrong position. What do I have to do? What does God want? You know, all these sorts of things. Who at least leaves the room open that He might be smarter than me? That He might see things different than I see them? And it gives me the opportunity to try to see things as He sees them. And and, and there are elements of that, I think, Vicki, that's really true. I do think it's a trust kind of situation. Uh, I think most of the times that we seek to know the how, we're doing it because of our own unbelief. And we just, we just haven't. Uh, we don't trust God in that way. Um, so whoever believes will in him. So again, this becomes a relational statement. Uh, the other thing that is uh, interesting about this that word believes is pos, and it means the all. I mean, not, not the word believes, the word whoever. Uh, so whoever believes, the all that believes. So the all, So in other words, so as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, even so must the sum be lifted up, so that the all who believes will have eternal life. And, and uh, I... I'll do more exegesis on this later when I have time. In him have eternal life, In him have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they would know you, Father, and Jesus whom you sent. Yes, Tim.
3: Yeah, I was just sitting here and and, and listening and and going over these scriptures, and I'm thinking how much we complicate the gospel and the evangelist message, you Mm -hmm. know. Just basically what it's saying here is believe and receive, And he's done this for everybody. The father loved everybody so much. He sent his son. That he sent his son. For everybody. For everybody, you know, and it's as simple as that. You just look at those few scriptures and he's not asking anything else. Mm -hmm. He just loves us so much.
0: And then when you boil it down to an individual person, and we're trying to share the gospel with an individual person, I know something that you don't know the god who sees himself as your father and who created you with a son or a daughter in mind loves you and he's never stopped loving yeah yeah
3: yeah yeah that's i, I just think it's incredible i'm so glad you covered these particular scriptures because that's what's been in my heart for so long now, the last five years probably. Yeah. You know, I said, I used to complicate, like other people complicate, what we need to have the Father's love and what we need to have for salvation. Mm-hmm. And it's so simple. It is,
0: it is. Um, the, the other thing that, that the one kind of the gospel seems to create is a belief that our belief creates something that leads us to eternal life. The gospel, as I'm coming to understand it, is that God has done something to give eternal life to people and that our belief awakens us to that. Our belief allows us to see that, allows us to begin to experience it. And I haven't got great illustrations. You know, there's the old illustration of uh, uh, you're in jail, but the door's unlocked. All you have to do is walk out. So come walk out. I understand where those came from and I understand the effort that they're trying to make. Somehow, that's why we want to study our language a little bit better. But I do believe that we can confidently say that God thinks of himself as any individual or group of individuals' father, and that love is what motivated him to send Jesus and do all this stuff. So, now, uh, the other form of the gospel predominantly arose out of um, Calvinism, particularly Scottish Calvinism back in the, 17, 1800s, that kind of thing. And there really is a doctrine, essential to Calvinism, that has absolutely no scriptural support. And it's the doctrine of limited atonement. But it was a necessary doctrine when the the, the gift of the gospel was only to the elect. Otherwise, Jesus would have died an ineffectual, blood-shedding experience on the cross because for the majority of people it would not have an effect. So you have the two, irresistible grace and most particularly what I consider to be the most onious of mainline doctrine, the limited atonement, that Jesus only died for a few. It just, it's not conceivable to me, which also begins to erode a little bit the hermeneutic of, of limiting these things that are said in Scripture or by Jesus to just the disciples or just believers or just this, uh, the other. Doesn't completely answer the question, though, It's a good question. Okay, so for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Again, this goes back to a revelation of the motive in the gospel. My friend, living the hedonistic lifestyle, the self-centered lifestyle that you are, the party animal that you are, God's primary concern with you is not to judge that lifestyle. But the gospel that most of us have grown up with talk about, it interprets this last down here, uh, he who believes him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. And almost all the time, when you say that scripture in the old form of the gospel, you mean judged those acts, those behaviors. And that's why the gospel is, that gospel is very ineffective to a person with a benign lifestyle and personality a nice, congenial, friendly person. Why do I need God? What's there to judge in my life? So we got to think a little bit differently about judgment, not dismiss it. And that's one of the foundational things we have to lay around it before we can talk about the, the quantity of the scope, about who and all and all that kind of stuff. Because I know I hang out with some people that uh, do believe in, in universalism, Christian universalism. And one of the things that I keep trying to work my way into a discussion on with them is you can't just base this belief on, well, if God's loving and nice, then everybody's going to be okay. That's, that's an, it's a nice expression, but it's an inadequate explanation of reality. Especially when there's really smart guys in India that take advantage of an old senior <laughs> citizen like myself who pluck money out of my checking account. Uh, So God didn't send his son into the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And again, we're all talking relational, relational. Uh, And even just as I talk about it, do you see how there's a greater emphasis in the way we talk about the gospel and the work of Jesus on the cross, even just through that little phrase, might be saved through him. There's something still going on with Jesus that is at the core of the gospel. It wasn't just the event that happened 2,000 or so years ago on the cross. That's a centerpiece, but it's not the whole of it. Jesus, in the other gospel, becomes a tool used by God. And when he accomplished his purpose, he got the attaboy of getting to go back in heaven. And now we've all got an opportunity. But I think it's much closer to the truth that when some half-naked person wanders out into the playa in Burning Man, God is with them manifesting a living reality of his love in the person of Jesus, by the Spirit, for them, and then you get a chance to go and witness to that, not tell them the story of days gone by. No. Pardon? Fully naked, yeah. I didn't want to be, you know, I always like using appropriate language in church. Like snotting. Uh, okay, so, what, what, and then look at this last one. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, here's this is something that makes the new gospel more demanding than the old because we're not just trying to get somebody to say Jesus like a magic word. We're trying to get them to believe in the one who proceeds from the Father and is the full expression of the Father's heart and will and the, the, the one hypostatic man and God that reveals what, what that person sitting there that you're witnessing to is destined to be. A living being, a human being, fully human in relationship with the living God. With God as his father, with Jesus as his brother, with the Holy Spirit as his comforter. Walking in the power. I just think it's an amazing reality. Reality. So that's the demand of the new gospel. Yes, Dan. I think if you
2: read the next couple of verses, ask about what does judge mean. If you read the next couple of verses, I was looking at that, and it and it talks about um, those who are judged by their deeds and so forth. They hide because they don't want to be exposed to the light and so on. Mm-hmm. It sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden. It does, where yeah. God is still there. Mm-hmm but they've gone off hiding from God, and they don't want to see him because of their shame.
0: And what, they, and they're still what, what the, very, the mere presence of God is going to cost them.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. And so it may be that it's not that God is actively acting against them, it's they have this shame and condemnation that their acts do mm-hmm. that keeps them from stepping Absolutely. into Absolutely. Let me read those
0: verses so people get the context. Yeah. This is the judgment. Yeah that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so his deeds may be manifest, listen to this, as having been wrought in God. See, that's another thing if we can move from what I'm calling the old gospel to what I'm calling the new gospel, even though I haven't got it fully defined yet, and I understand that, if we can move there, we can look at a mom, for instance, who may be messed up on a lot of fronts, but she loves her baby. And we can say, I know something you don't know. That love you feel for your child is a literal manifestation of the Father's heart in you toward that baby. He is loving your son or daughter through you. And I think that that has the potential to stir up something in people. And it gets more complicated than that. This theology class I'm in, Kruger is just amazing at that. He tells the story of uh, being picked up from the airport in the Midwest someplace to go to a conference or church or something. And uh, the young man was a Bible school student. Or maybe he was going to talk at the Bible school. Anyway, the young man was a, a, a Bible school student. And he says, so are you a missionary or what? He says, no, I'm going to be a pastor. He says, really? He said, you raised around this area? And it was in Nebraska. He said, yeah. And he said, just at that moment, one of those gigantic multi-tractors track made a U-turn there, you know, next to the highway and was plowing off. He says, well, uh, let me ask you a question then. What do you think... God is doing in that farmer. The guy said, well, I I don't know what you mean by the question. He said, well, you're going to be a pastor. You plan on staying in this area? He said, yeah, probably. So he said, a lot of people in your congregation are going to drive a tractor like that. They're going to give 50, 60, 80 hours a week to farming. And you don't, it's never even occurred to you to ask, what is God doing in their lives? He goes, wow, no, it hasn't. So let me ask you another question. He says, "Uh, are you going to eat at home tonight? Yeah. What are you going to do before you take the first bite? He said, well, I'm going to thank God for the food. He goes, why? Why not thank him for the farmer? I thought it was a great (laughs) little dialogue. It led to a wonderful dialogue. It's a big, long story. But is it possible that God is feeding people out of his compassion for the world, his love for his children, through that farmer, and we're not recognizing it, Or we only recognize it when it's a uh, a missions with seed missionary trip, and then we recognize it. But we don't recognize it when it's some farmer that's worked diligently enough to have a, a couple of Cadillacs and two pickups and all this stuff that God's hand is on. You know what I mean? Or is it the same thing? A a diligent little farmer in Nairobi who's out there with sticks putting stuff together for his family. This Gospel opens up knowing you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus whom you sent. Right now, here, in ways that the other Gospel, which is just an opportunity to make the right decision and escape hell, doesn't do. Anyway. Okay, so that's it for tonight. Relational. We need to talk about inclusiveness. What do we mean? Because as soon as you say inclusive, in most groups, especially um, people that are you know kind of evangelistically oriented, they're gonna they're gonna pin you on on whatever label you a universalist or label something else. What are we? What's included? Who's included? Because we need to know. We can talk about that. Now, Richard had an experience a few years running, going to Burning Man, so that his vision of the pool of people that God is working on expanded a lot. Big time. And uh, and, and I don't think we all have to go uh, covert with the naked ones like Richard does just to have an expanded vision. He didn't get to go this year because of COVID. What a bummer. Oh, in last year, both years, yeah. Um, I, experienced, I experienced something that changed my life dramatically up in Salt Lake City when I went up there with uh, three other guys, and we were dragging a cross with a wheel in the back, which kind of made us wimps, you know. But nevertheless, the wheel did. Dragging the cross didn't. But um, the last day we were there, we ended up, uh, you guys have all heard the story, probably, but we ended up in this, this uh, street called the Rio Grande District, which is where all the heroin addicts are. And there were just hundreds and hundreds of heroin addicts. And as sincerely as I was capable of doing, my intention was to bring Jesus there several years ago. And when I walked around the corner, the very first person I looked into their eyes was this young woman who was shooting up. And I go, oh my God, you're already here. I'm not bringing you anywhere. I saw, I don't know how to explain it. I saw Jesus in her eyes. And when I started talking to her, you know what he was working on in her life? By her own testimony. He was working on reuniting her with her mom because the alienation from her mom and dad is why she was on the street. That sounds like God. And it sounds like he was there. It didn't sound like anybody needed to bring him. It sounds like he was in her trying to restore the heart of the fathers to the children because that's his heart. So I think think we're on the right track. I, I love you guys for being willing to put up with it. And I love you, Ronnie, for being patient to not be able to get to all of them time. Janet. Yeah.
4: yeah. I have, I have one, one thing, thing to, to say to add to, add to what, what God is doing in us. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe he's involved in our life and, like, highly involved, you know, like enjoying being involved with everything, little thing we do, like being in the farmer, you know, or eating dinner with us or being with us, with our family, all of the things we do in life. He, he, that's what he's about. You know, he loves that. That's what he came to do is to come be with us.
0: And it reminds me of that little scene in the movie, the shack where, um uh, sir, IU and, and Papa and Jesus are asking Matt questions about his kids and then he stops in the middle of that. You can tell he's thinking about something. And he goes, I don't get why you're asking me these questions. You know more about my children than I do. And Sarayu says something to the effect of, we just love seeing them through your eyes, hearing about them from your perspective. And I think that that's it. But for that to be the case, how's that happen except in a dream that Mac's having or whatever after that accident? If, if does Does God really live in us, and if he does live in us, does he see people through our eyes? Does he relate to them through it? And I think that's absolutely right, Janet. That's a beautiful way to way to see it. And I think that, I think, I mean, like, even think about this as one way the gospel kind of elevates our our witness. So we have here in this unmanned seat, the unbeliever that I've been pointing to and using as an illustration. Well, even if I'm not fully convinced that God is in them, God is in me. And and he's doing something with them. Now, you've got evidence that God's already working in them before the God in you works on them in Burning Man. That guy. He's right there. Yeah. Anyway, praise God. Any other thoughts from the Zoomers? Yeah, you look like you're percolating on something there, Jeremy. You got the thinker pose going there.
5: The conversation tonight was up. I remember when a shift happened for me uh, and it was really about um, instead of looking at the world and trying to bring god into it and seeing all the places where he wasn't there it was recognizing all the all the uh it's almost like the scales fell off and then, so now i could see all the all the places where he was there he was involved without the uh without the restrictions i placed on it so for instance Somebody would say to me, hey, you should go see our dentist. He's a believer. And it started to bother me when they said that, because that meant something else when it wasn't a believer. And, and you know, there was, a, there was an exclusion then. And so uh, uh, I remember being close to people that, that didn't claim to, to know Jesus in any way, but the generosity in their heart told me that, that there, was a, there was something that was there. Uh, as they treated me very generously, and, and I, I saw that throughout their life. So just having those eyes to see, uh, you know, what are you doing on this earth? Because you're obviously doing stuff everywhere. Um, that That's really kept me from uh, exploring stuff that just really gets me in trouble in terms of, of my, uh, you know, ability to see chaos everywhere and and heartache everywhere and hate everywhere and and uh, there's no room for that when you're just looking at what the father is doing all over
0: himself. you when you work on the the settled assumption that he is in people he is working just because you're up against somebody who it doesn't show out of very much you can still be sort of the senior partner in the hope of the gospel for them and uh We were literally taught this in Bible school, and I'm ashamed of it, but uh, we were taught that in a pagan culture where a person's not a believer, that acts like a mother loving her children were self-centered and rose out of self-centered motives because they had to. Because unless Jesus lived in you, you couldn't love because we love because he first loved us. So there's another scripture that now opens up well, if we love because he first loved us, does that apply to a person who hasn't said the sinner's prayer yet? Of course it does. And, and when you think about it, not only the lunacy of having to dismiss every act of kindness, everything along these lines, the violation of Scripture that if you give a cup of cold water to a person in the name of a prophet, you get a prophet's reward, you have to be a believer before you can do that? Or can some not-headed unbeliever? Take act kindly towards a prophet and then get some reward. Well, I would say the Old Testament says all the time that you can. So anyway, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. And, and this gospel opens that up. Yes, Sir Sterling.
2: Will we eventually touch on reconciliation as part of the gospel? Okay.
0: Yeah. In other words, we've got to get to the point of where we are yeah. and, and what is what stands in the way of what God's trying to do in our lives. I was
2: thinking more motive than anything, like, you know, what... What drives him? What motivates him? Sure, we'll get there. And then also, I feel like there's this turning point where, um, like things were hopeful and positive, and you know the gospel was good, and then suddenly turned bad. Like you know, focus on judgment, no, condemnation. That's a good point. Like, I would love to hear more about where did that transition occur? Who were those who started? Transitioning that way, in sure, line, sure. Because like if we could
0: lives. identify how the how the, the the broader concepts of the gospel got rolled back, we might know how not to fall into them ourselves. Yeah, yeah. That's great. It's yeah. a great question. That's great. Yes, sir. Ah, Paul. Hi, buddy.
6: Hey, hey uh, about a third of the way in, you made a, a reference, and, and it really caught my attention. You, you said. And forgive me for hacking this. And if you don't remember, I totally understand. But you made the reference about the, the father being, um, oh, uh, well, being the father essentially to all. And whether people realize it or not. I mean, it's not just God being God, but it's the specificity of him being father. And I, you, you phrased it in a certain way that I've never heard anyone say it before. And I don't know if you remember even the point of the teaching I was referencing, but it, it caught my ear. And I'm, if I have to watch it again, uh, later when you, when you post it on Facebook or something, I will, but, but does that ring a bell or can I, do you want me to
0: know do- exactly where that passage in Ephesians two or three, I think it's in three where, um, God is, uh, um, where every family on heaven and earth derives its name—that's part of it.
6: Sorry, it just has to do with the reality of the fact that our God is a Father, and He is viewing us continuously. I mean, continuously through the paradigm and the 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 kind of relational dynamic. You know, it it it, it goes to His composition, His essence that
0: or I like saying he conceived us, and I love the word conceived. He conceived us as his children. Yes. In his heart, before he created. And therefore creation was designed to be a place where we could experience being children of God. And then Ephesians confirms that every family on heaven and earth derives its name from him as father. Uh, even, even the whole knowing of God as eternal life. If you read the context there in, in uh, John 17, one, and 3, he's, Jesus is addressing by name, Father. When he gets to this is eternal life, that they would know you. He's talking to the Father. You, the only true God. And Jesus whom you sent. And the relational thing about being the, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's who he is. And so that the dynamics of that relationship are the eternal forerunner for us being created. And the eternal forerunner of us—that that, we could explore that a lot more. But yeah,
6: right. Absolutely. But yeah, it's the, idea the idea that, that we that were conceived, him, you know, in Him as children. It's—it's a—it's a specific identity that, for I think, so many people, including myself for years, simply had no grasp of. I think you.
0: Right there in, in uh, the beginning of, of the Gospel of John, that when when you believe on Him. Uh, He'll give you the power to become a child of God, which you weren't. It's not. It's a gnomai. A power to be made into the one that you already are. In his heart. In his heart is the place reality comes from. Yeah. And we'll we'll probably wrap it up after this one.
7: Uh, like Richard's saying, he, he always uses Burning Man. I'm always using object lessons from my theological professor, four-year-old cute daughter. <laughs> uh-huh, sure. Um... And I was talking about something before that God told me, I feel like he told me, about the the verse, he came to seek and to save that which are lost, and and I felt like he was telling me, they're not lost, I already came, they're they're sought, and then I got an object lesson of what sought meant. I really felt like God just hit me with it. Um, Me and Abby were in the world's largest Walgreens there in Manitou Springs, Uh, it's the size of a grocery store, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, yeah, and um, I was walking out the store and... Everyone there. Every fiber of my being was stop everything to see. Nothing in this world mattered other than where is my little girl. Mm
0: -hmm.
7: Nothing. I could be late. I could have any problem in the world except this problem. And the cashier said, "Don't worry, she's just right over here." I. But my heart stopped. Everything stopped. Nothing mattered.
0: Where'd you learn to feel about your child that way?
7: I have never learned that, right? The moment I was handed a baby girl, I got lobotomized.
0: Yeah, you did. You Um, got an infusion of we love because he first loved us.
7: Right. And I felt like I was saying, that's sought. And that's how I am with this world. The guy full of tattoos who you told me, told a uh, witness to. Mm -hmm. That's sought. Yeah. That's how I feel about them all.
0: Yeah.
7: Um, Yeah. And I will stop. I will stop everything. I'm doing everything, including sending Jesus to die a horrible death. And all this I'm I didn't learn anything new. I learned a level of urgency right that I didn't understand.
0: Well, uh, there's ways to, to to leverage that though. Yeah. it's beautiful, it's beautiful. And there's ways to leverage that. Uh, the idea, you know like like does it, is there a realistic chance that this unbelieving person sitting here that God either has predestined them? And therefore loves and is pursuing them or is indifferent to them. Indifferent to a child that he made? There's no possible way. There's no possible way. No possible way. And, and honestly, don't you get the impression that sort of the God and father depicted in the chick tracks of old was either indifferent or hostile to a large number of people? I think people think that. And I think people, when their own reference point in their life is the most authoritative reference point they have, they almost have no choice but to think, well, if God exists, he obviously would be really pissed at me (laughs) because I'm a jerk. And it's all about us. And one of the things that we have the opportunity to do with the good news is he's not like that. And he doesn't think of you like you think of you. That's what we're trying to find the language for. So, Father, thank you. Thanks, Greg, too. That was beautiful. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that it it isn't something that we're trying to produce. We're trying to speak into. We're trying to believe into. We're trying to receive and pass on to others. We're trying to live in the beauty and the confidence and the revelation of it. And so, Father, I thank you. Uh, Just let these thoughts, let the relational aspect of them, let the fact that there's no God behind that dynamic relationship between you, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit. There's not a brooding, distant monarch behind this wonderful relationship that has watched us from, as Baxter says, the uh, infinite distance of a disapproving heart. Thank you that we're making progress in our understanding. And I know you're going to give us the words. You're going to put them in our mouth and write them in our heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. This is fun to work on.